We are in 1 Peter, for those who may be visiting with us today, we're in 1 Peter chapter 4. We are in verse 7 through 11. We will not get that far today, but I want to read them and prepare our hearts uh, for what the Lord has for us. So 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking with the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in God, we do delight. Uh, it has been a pleasure to worship this morning. Thousands, ten thousands, and even millions of things to praise your name for. To realize that everything is because of who you are, not because of who I am. Not because of what we've done, but because of what you've done. And Father, those are good reminders to draw us back to the sovereignty that we sang about the realization that you are the God of heaven and earth. And Father, what a privilege and honor not only to be drawn to the cross of Calvary and have salvation, but again, we do not take for granted that we have the living word of God, that Father, we can go to it. I thank you for its power in my life, in our lives collectively, and pray that this morning it would do its work again. I thank you that we have the truth and we can be separated from error by going to the word of God and taking it for the way you've given it. And I pray that as we study the word of God together this morning, you would be with us, the spirit of God would have full liberty, that any preconceived ideas and thoughts already this morning, even with the text, would be put aside, that you might teach us truth. Might the word of God be rightly divided we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. I will mention this morning, I will not be shaking hands, and it is not because I don't want to, per se, shake hands as I usually do, and it's not because I have a cold or I'm sick. It is none of the above. I do have an assignment in which I have to leave immediately after the service and go north, Pastor uh, Michaud is retiring today, and I need to be up in at Baker River Bible Church immediately after the service here this morning. So that is the only way. Uh, I'm, I'm not running because of something I said, and I don't want to face you or anything like that. So you ha have heard it right from me directly this morning. I asked the question, if you looked at the bulletin this morning, how does hearing 
the end is near, affect you? Now, we will talk about the specifics of this text today and, Lord willing, next week as well. And we'll begin to get into it in just a moment. But I first want you to really think about that question. First of all, what does it mean when you hear the end? To some, it means the end of physical life when they hear that. To many, it means the end of life on this planet as we know it. When they hear the end, when media, when, when people hear the end, sometimes their thought is the end of this planet as we know it, either because of such things as this, the sun burning out, or the planet just absolutely exploding, or, most common today, death of, to the planet by environmental change. To some, it means also the end because of an apocalyptic war by man. It means different things to different people. Others, when they hear the end, they think of the return of Christ. They think of the changes that will take place in this planet as recorded in the word of God. They think of the creation of the new heaven and the new earth. So when we say the end, or when Peter says the end to these people, a lot of things might come into one's mind. So we need to know, first of all, what Peter was talking about. And, secondly, what to do. It's one thing to understand, first of all, what he's talking about and understand what the end is. And the second thing is, what do I, should I do about it? How should it affect me? Or should it affect me? For centuries, let me say this at the beginning, and probably for millennial in honesty, people have talked about the end and the world coming to an end. You still see it talked about in the media today. To some, they have joked about it. It's a big joke, yeah, when everything comes to an end, and they really don't believe it ever is going to come to an end. Then you have some that have been around ever since I was a little boy, and they're still around. They carry these signs, and cartoons are made. The end is coming. And they're marching around, and people think they're widows, and lost it a little bit. As I said, Christians talk about the return of Christ all the time and have been for centuries. And again, millennial have been talking about the return of Christ. They've been talking about such things as the new heavens and the new earth. But it's just talk. It's theology. And a lot of times, if we are honest, it has little meaning no matter what the category is that we're talking in. And so some general observations even by myself as I reflected on the length of time I've been a believer and also even before that, and it's not easy to summarize it very quickly for you, but I would say that as people look at the end, whatever that means, and even Christians have looked at it, 
people fall usually into the category generally of one, first of all, there are some who deny that there is ever going to be an end or that Christ is ever going to come back. I would put them in the category of people that look at that. It's a myth. Don't believe it. The sun will never burn out. The planet will always be here. Christ is never coming back. That's a Mickey Mouse story. And don't worry about any of it, no matter where you are in the concept of the end. There are others that I have witnessed and even seen personally people do this that fall into the category of panic. That what happens is they hear about the end or they read in scripture, they particularly get interested in the book of Revelation, and off they go into the hills. They hide. I have known people to do that. They, some sell all they have and go and wait. And that's been recorded where they wait and they're waiting for Christ's return or the end to happen. Some of them are unbelievers as well, just waiting for it all to happen. Others go build these bunkers as if they're building these bunkers up in the mountains is going to hide them from everything. Some others, because of the concepts that they read, get into a panic situation and become depressed and discouraged. And then there are these, the other category that uh, I've witnessed in my lifetime that come up, and a lot of times it's professing Christians that come in with this, but endless speculation and sensationalism as to when it's going to happen and an absolute saturation of and commitment to and thinking about, talking about, arguing about all the time eschatological charts because they're just concerned about all the details, not that we shouldn't study. And they come up with these dates and come up with these formulas. And by the way, I have my eschatology class go through uh, the idea of a chart to try to determine some things. But they get so uh, involved in it that they come up with dates even though the scriptures say no one knows. But men are convinced that they're smarter than God and they can figure it out anyway. And then they'll let him know. Now they would be insulted at what I just said, maybe even some in the audience, but that's true. They've got it all figured out. That's interesting. But the more theological debate and argument that goes on that I see, the saddest part to me in all of it is that I see more theological discussion about eschatology and more theological discussion even among believers about when the end is or whatever it is then I see discussion about if you really believe that, how should you live? And we'll argue to death about what's going to happen and not be concerned about the way we're living in anticipation of it. And then there's the final category that, in my opinion, many today and I believe is what led the Lord to reveal to us that before he comes back, will he find faith on the earth? Because, I don't know what just went off, but somebody's going off in competition here. But uh, my apologies for even saying that, but I, I just kept my trying to thought lost for a minute here. But uh, what happens is, 
I lost the thought. <laughs> My apologies. Uh, coming back. Oh, the, the category, it would led to the Lord saying, will he find faith in the earth? And this passage that he says, where is the sign of his coming? Everything's been remaining the same. And that last category that I would give you, which in my opinion is the worst category of all that most Christians fall into, and that is indifference. Total indifference, though they say they believe he's coming back. They believe it, and I really do believe they believe it, but it has little, if any, effect on the practical value of their daily living. It is just a discussion for theology. I believe the text that we are in, that's why it'll take a little bit more since I'm in dealing with all of this, I believe the text will show that, first of all, it is important to realize, and let me say for the Christian, that Christ is coming back, and I didn't say that's what necessarily the text is saying here, but that an end is coming. And I believe the text, more importantly, is going to deal with what we don't deal with. And that is the effect, the practical effect that that should have in our lives if we believe an end is coming. So let's get into it. Verse 7. Let's deal with the event. Starts off, the end of all things. And I think legitimately, we should ask the question, what is the end of all things referring to? What is Peter referring to when he says the end of all things? And I want to make some statements right up front. Listen carefully. It is true that every one of us, anyone who will live in the future, anyone who has lived in the past, every one of us will die. And there is a time, and it always is true, that our time is always at hand for physical death. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 says, It is appointed unto men once to die. If you are in the foolish category this morning of thinking you're not going to die, I don't know where you're getting that thinking from because in your heart of hearts you know that you will and you're afraid of it to some degree. Maybe it is the, the way it'll happen or whatever. And our time is always at hand. John said that. John chapter 7, the Lord Jesus Christ himself said, my time is not at hand, your time is always at hand. And so right there in the pew, and by the way, we have had that happen in this church where people have collapsed right in the pew while preaching was going on. I read a story, I showed it to the staff just this past week, that a pastor stood in the pulpit and said, I am ready to die, I'm not afraid of death, and he never finished his message. He died right in the pulpit within five minutes. True story. Just happened recently. We don't know when our time is. It is also true that the earth will change. By the way, let's just turn, since we're in Peter, go to 2 Peter for a moment. I want you to just see that these things are true. 2 Peter chapter 3. So death is inevitable, physical death. And for those of you saying, well, I'm going to be transformed, that is a change that will still take place in which this body will no longer be as it is. So you're not going to win that one. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, for example, but by his word, the present heavens 
and earth that we just sang about are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Go with me to verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief, like a thief, this led to Christian movies, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burnt up. Now, I'm not here to expound all of that to you, just here to point out for this morning, so you understand it, that everybody will die, and also this earth as we know it will be changed. No question about it. Christ will also return. In Zechariah chapter 14, verse 4, you cannot be more specific. The Lord says that he will set his foot on the Mount of Olives when he returns. Revelation chapter 19 and 20, while I am well aware of the many different interpretations are given it, are very clear, if you understand scripture literally, that the Lord is coming back. And if you move on to chapter 21 and chapter 22 of the book of Revelation, point number four, the heavens and the earth will become new. There will be a new heaven and a new earth, not like the planet that we know now. Not like the heavens that we see now. There will be no night there. There will be no sea. There will be no need for the sun, the moon, or the stars. That is different from what you and I see today. That will happen on the authority of the word of God. And there will be, according to Revelation chapter 21, verses 22 forward, a time in which time will no longer be existent. What do you mean? Time is for you and me. That's another reason you don't need the sun, the moon, and the stars. According to Genesis, those were created so we would have time, and we live in time. In the new heavens and the new earth, there will be no more need for that. Those are just some facts in Scripture. So, what is he talking about? Is he talking about any one of those particular events, as I mentioned before? Is it just death? What does he mean when he's talking to believers here, and he's been encouraging and, and talking. And what does, he, what does he mean when he jumps into, and the end of all things? Well, I, is he specifically referring to one of those events? I think the context gives us our answer. Now, I found this interesting in a number of translations that I looked at, and unless I just misunderstood something in looking at the, the Greek as closely as I could, a lot of people don't give reference to a very small and important thing here. There's a word day, a day. It's a conjunction. And the word can be translated but, moreover, now. And some have actually translated the word now here. And it says now the end is near. And I think it's very important to put that conjunction in there. As small as it is. And usually I don't place a big emphasis because I don't want to get you all bogged down like you have to know all the Greek. But... The reality is day, I think, presents a very important connection. Why? Because it connects it back, if you put that in there, but, moreover, or now, the end is near, it connects you back to the context. What did he just talk about in verses 5 and 6? Take a look. And that's why I think the scriptures need to be studied in context. He said in verse 5, in talking about the persecutors, but they will give account to him. 
who is ready to judge the living and the dead. And then he goes on in verse 6 to talk about believers, as I mentioned last time, and says, though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. And so he's talked about encouraging them to live for Christ in the midst of persecution, in the midst of things, and don't worry about those who are persecuting you. They will face their judgment. And don't worry about you, though you be judged by them. Continue on. You're going to be with Christ forever, and the end is near. And if you put it in that context, what does he mean? I don't think he's concentrating on an eschatology chart. I don't think that's his purpose with them at all. I don't think he's saying, get out a chart and mark everything down. Not at all. Not that there's not a place for that. I think his main point is this, accountability. You need to realize that they are going to give an account, and you're going to give an account, and it's near. Plain and simple. They will be judged by Christ. The unsaved will also be judged by him. And in the context, he wants them to understand persecutors, persecutors will be judged, and it's near. And I'll talk about that word near in a moment. And so will believers. And if, I want to say this. If you today are sitting in this auditorium and have heard the gospel over and over again and you're still unsaved, you don't realize you're a breath away from being in the presence of God and spending eternity in hell. It's real. God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. It's not a surprise to him that you're a sinner. Even while we were enemies, Christ died for us. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. He sent his son because... He was the only one that could satisfy the righteous judgment on man. And as the perfect God-man that came into the world, he bore the penalty of sin, took the wrath of God, and by faith in him, and faith in him alone, you can have forgiveness of sin and the gift of eternal life. Apart from that, you will face the judgment of God and spend eternity in hell, and that could be in your very next breath. And for believers we also will stand before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account of what we have been doing. And that's what Peter is trying to drive home. What? You need to understand, I've been talking to you about continuing on and don't worry about that because you're also going to be judged and they're going to be judged. And it is, and he says, and that the end, basically standing before giving an account to God, and then he says, is near. What does he mean? It's the perfect tense that's used here. It is near, it is drawing near, has drawn near, it could be translated as. Is at hand, some translate it that way. What does that mean? What he's saying to them, and I believe it's as clear as a bell, and I don't care where your eschatology is. I think it's clear as a bell that he's saying to him, you need to understand your accountability and the end of standing before Christ is imminent. And that's the point. You need to understand that you can be drawn into his presence imminently. It's near. It's right at hand. They could be with Christ anytime. The persecutors could be judged by him at any moment. And what they need to do is focus. They need to focus. Today, Christians talk about the rapture. They talk about the return of Christ. They talk about the second coming. They talk about the judgment seat of Christ. And yet, they live as if it is so far away. 
And so far away from their life, it has no impact whatsoever. Like they're going to live in this world, and this world is their home. We have to be honest. I'm being honest with you. I live like that many times. I do believe that the, it's imminent for the Lord to return. But I often live as if I'm just going to go on for 30, 40, 50 years. And then, yeah, I guess I'm going to stand before Christ. And there's very little effect when we do that. We need to understand that as he's talking here, he's talking about the fact that you need to realize, I want you to be encouraged to live for Christ, and the reason is your accountability to him. Obviously, it would deal with the return of Christ. Obviously, it would deal with death, but I don't think he's trying to deal with a specific other than to help them to see the accountability to answer to God is at hand. And he wants to get into their living. Why do you say that? How should it affect them? How should it affect us? Look at the verse. Verse 7. If the end is near, Peter, and that is what he means, should it have an effect? Look, how should it affect them? Therefore, be of sound judgment, of sober spirit, for the purpose of prayer. Just verse 7 alone. It absolutely should affect them. I'd like you to turn to James for just a moment. James chapter 4. James chapter 4. His conclusion, and again, notice he said that. The very first word after it is near is therefore. Is that being true? that you could be in the very presence of God, given accountability to him, and you could live with him forever, and they could be judged. Therefore, if it's that imminent, here's what should happen. Conclusion. And we'll look at it. But I want you to see something in James. James chapter 4. Pick it up in verse 13. Because I think, again, sometimes we live like this. He says, Come now, you who say... Today, tomorrow, we'll go into such and such a city, spend a year there, and engage in business and make profit. Yet you don't know. What's your life? What your life will be like tomorrow? Now, this isn't saying you don't plan. There may be some in the audience that are saying, Pastor Dan is basically saying we should never plan for the future. No, but we have to be honest with ourselves. We make our plans and leave God out. We make our plans and live as if I know that I've got 20 years. I know that I've got 25 years before I'm standing before the Lord. I know I've got 15 years, 5 years. You don't know any of that. Neither do I. He goes on in James. He says, you are just a vapor. It appears for a little while and vanishes away. That isn't to discourage them. He tells them what they should do. Verse 15, instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills. That is not just a statement to just throw on. It's a reality. We will live and do this or do that. We should be consulting the Lord and see what the Lord wants and realize, yes, I can plan. I can plan a future. I can plan a vacation. I can plan to move. I can plan these things, but it's all in the context of realizing I may not get to today, to end of the day. And what I want is God's will in my life. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. That's what he says. 
All such boasting is evil. To be living like and saying you're living like a pilgrim when in reality you're living like this world is your home, the only one that's getting fooled is me or you. It's self-deception. And you can talk all the theology you want, but if you're not living it in anticipation of its return, what good is it? He says, therefore, to the one who knows, it's interesting, the right thing to do, and he doesn't do it. To him, it's sin. And he gets into that aspect. I went back to James because I wanted you to see, sometimes we live as if there's, yeah, I believe he's coming back and there's no effect. It doesn't affect me today because I've got these plans for 20 years and I'm going to make all this money and I'm going to do all of this and I'm going to do all of that. You know, we talk about graduation. The seniors are looking forward to their future in anticipation of college life and all of that and everything that comes. And that's good. But I hope every one of those eight seniors are doing it with the idea, if God wills, and I want to be in God's will doing what I, because I don't even know if I'm going to finish college. And to bring it for you and I, it should be that way every day in our lives. Watch, go back to 1 Peter. Therefore, because the end is imminent, because your accountability to God, and that's all I think he's dealing with, you can put in there the second coming of Christ, many writers do, you can put in the judgment seat of Christ. You can put in his return to the earth physically, whatever. But at the whole point, I think that he's been saying is right from the get-go, you're an alien here. You're under persecution. They're going to face judgment. You're going to stand before God. Live in anticipation that it could happen any time. And here's how to live. Therefore, number one, here's how it should affect us. Be of sound judgment. What does that say? And anyone that's ever been in any one of my classes is going to love this. Think. That's what that verse says. Think. Be of sound mind. Listen carefully. That's easy to look at. Don't be driven by your emotions. Emotions come from God. They are good. Nothing wrong with them. It's good to cry. Even sometimes fear or nervousness, that, that comes. It's part of our being. But don't let that drive your life. If these persecuted Christians let their fears and emotions take charge, it would be chaos in their life. Don't let emotions or passions lead. That's true for me and it's true for you. If emotions and, and passions are not the caboose, but they're the driving force of the train, I'm in trouble. And what he's saying is, I want you to keep a level head, despite all of the difficulties. That's the context. He wants those believers to, first of all, have sound judgment. Don't be driven by even the persecution that's around you. Don't be looking at all the smoke screens that are there. Be driven by a sound mind, and you won't have a sound mind unless you know what the Word of God says. Let me illustrate it as you find it in scripture and try to be practical with you. There's a situation where the Lord's doing tremendous miracles and he's teaching his disciples and he's telling them that I am the God that you've been looking to. I am the Messiah. You can trust in me. I can provide for you, etc. Uh, come on, we need a break. Let's get in a boat and go across the, the uh, lake. They go get in a boat, and he goes down and takes a nap. 
Circumstances of life around them start howling like we just saw this past week. All of a sudden, the storm comes out of nowhere. And the boat is being tossed, so much so that they feel their lives are in jeopardy. And the waves are coming in, and everything's falling apart, and their emotions are so far driven that they forget God is working. They forget who's sleeping next to them. And they run over and they say, don't you care? And he simply gets up and says, peace, be still, bang, done, over. Sound mind versus emotions in panic by people who should have known better. Comes across the scene, been teaching his disciples all day long. He says, sit them down. It's time to eat. It's time to eat. Where am I going to go? Kmart's closed. Market basket's on strike. I, I, where am I going to go and get all this stuff? Well, what have you got? You only got a couple of fish, a couple of loaves of bread. Dang, 5,000 people here. Sit them down and start to distribute. What? Sound mind, knowing who, he, who, who they belong to, knowing that he has the solution. Standing before Pilate, death is in the balance. Pilate's trying to free him. Pilate turns around and everybody's screaming, crucify, crucify, beat him up, take him out, do all you can to him. And he's standing there not making a comment. And that's what Peter talks about. We already studied that. And Pilate turns around and says, what's the matter with you? Don't you know I have the freedom to kill you? Sound mind. Um, you don't have any power at all. If you're going to kill me, it's only because my father allows that. You see? Now, those are just some illustrations from Scripture. And the point that he's trying to, Peter's trying to say is, listen, around them was chaos, persecution, and they were suffering. But he started off the book and said, you're aliens. And he, and he just dread, got them to the point just recently of saying, look, at you have eternal life and you're going to be with Christ. And that can happen any time. Live in light of eternity. Have your focus on what really should be focused on. Have sound thinking when chaos is going around you. Don't be just driven by the emotions. And to make it practical, I think that's what happens in our lives. We do know Christ. We do know that we're going to be with him. We do know that he's going to return. And then we lose our job or we get bad news from a doctor or something happens to one of our children. And rather than taking a step back and doing what he's going to say that I might not even get to this morning about praying, the emotions take over and look out. My wife better get out of the way. My children better get out of the way. And all of a sudden, that sovereign grace that I believed in I am in a panic because I don't have sound thinking. And that's what he's saying to them. You know, think of it as a sports team. Isn't it amazing? Pressure comes on. You're in the seventh game of whatever. It's the last minute. And you're now in overtime in a hockey game. And everybody, and the fans are going nuts and their hearts are beating. They can't sleep. Guys are having a heart attack watching TV. Everything's going on, and the players are out there just giving it. They're all keeping their sound mind, and someone comes along and scores. Why? 
because while everybody else is panicking, that person just keeps putting in their effort, keeps doing what they're supposed to do, and doesn't let the emotions, of course they have emotions, but the sound mind, I got a job to do. So that for Boston fans, you're gonna love this. So Havlicek steals the ball. Johnny Most, that's right. And it's because everyone else is panicking. The other team has the ball, they get a chance to score, and Havlicek keeps his focus and goes out and steals the pass and they win the game. He kept a sound mind. That's just practical. And his whole point on keeping a sound mind is to keep an eternal focus on things. You and I run into practical things every day. We have to be honest. I have situations that I get nervous about. I get panic attacks about, or I get ulcers. I don't have any ulcers, but you know what I'm saying. I get all worked up inside. It literally happened this week uh, to me. Some of you know I jog, and it was rather warm, and it made a big switch from just cold to, and it was humid one day. But my wife knows this is true, that I had so many things that were on my plate and all going on, and I was tense inside, so I'm going to go out and jog to get a break. I had to stop jogging. It was too hot and all of the stress was there and the best thing that happened to me was I stopped and by the time I got back, I get in my office and I started praying and everything kind of went away. Doesn't mean the problems were gone, but my focus got off all of the problems and difficulty and that's what he's saying. If you really believe that he's coming back, then that should affect your life. And for number one, you should have a sound mind. Number two, let me just cover this. He says, be sober. Now, we understand what that means in, uh, in English, but the, the idea is it goes behind self-control. It goes on the idea of being alert. If I really think, and that's why I read in Luke, if I really think he's coming back, shouldn't I be looking for it? Many times we profess that we're looking for the Lord to come back, and maybe in his presence, and it's really, can you stay away a little bit? I get too much to do. Rather than saying, if it's your will that's today, come Lord Jesus. Forget that project anyway. I didn't want to get it to it. Uh, or whatever it might be. We need to be alert. And the idea behind this being sober-minded, it's closely related to sound mind, but he wants them to have good, solid thinking that's based upon what the evidence is that God has given in the Word of God, to know the Word of God, and then to be sober-minded, not to be controlled by the emotions. The only thing that's supposed to control us, according to the Word of God, is the Spirit of God. Let Him control your life. Most of us don't even have time for it. Don't be governed. Don't be controlled by your eyes. Don't be controlled by your gut. Oftentimes that's the case. And what happens is we want more and more and we lust for the flesh. We, we have the, the pride of life. We, all of that gets in because we want, and we're not being really controlled by the Spirit of God. We're not being controlled by what we say we believe. But his point to them is, I want you to be of sound thinking, not just bounced around by your emotions. I want you to be controlled in the spirit. I want you to be sober. I want you to be alert. I want you to be ready. And let me end with just verse 7 so I at least conclude that. And then he says, here's the reason why. For the purpose of, and it's actually in the plural, for the purpose of prayers. What? That's what the Lord did. Didn't he be in Gethsemane? Didn't he take time to go on the mountain and pray? Didn't his disciples say, teach us to pray? Didn't they want to do that? The idea is if we have a sober mind and we are alert, what it will drive us to 
if you think about prayer, what is prayer showing? Our dependence upon God, not my abilities to get through this situation, not my abilities to suffer the persecution that's going to be driven their way, not my ability to just grind it out, if you will, even in a ball game. No. He wants us to be of sound thinking, to go back, to realize who I belong to, who I have that cares for me, to be of sober thinking so I'm controlled not by my emotions and not by my flesh, but by the Spirit of God so that it drives me to pray, even to this extent. God, I don't know what's going to happen. God, just like the Lord did, if it be possible, take it away. But if it's not, you give me the strength. Let me go through the situation. You give me the wisdom on how to handle that situation. I'm being honest with you standing in front of you. I fail in that so many times. I just try to go through it, get through it, let my emotions take over, and all too often I have to go back and start apologizing to people. And all too often I have to go back and say, Lord, I should have been praying first. Now I come to you. Forgive me. Does that ever happen to you? Maybe it doesn't. I guess I'm alone. But, that, but it's, it's just a reality of life. And that's what Peter's really driving. You see, I don't think this is an eschatological chart that he's given. I think it's a very practical instruction. You're going to be with the Lord? It's imminent? Well, then live like it. Live for him. And wait till we get into next week, because if I open it now, I won't have enough time. You'll be glad because I'm going to stop early. That's a rarity. Okay? But I want you to, here's an assignment for the week. You ready? If nothing else, would you read verse 8 and just chew on it? Because everybody says, above all, keep fervent in your love. Yeah, all we need is love for one another. And they don't finish the verse. Because love covers a multitude of sins. Come back next week. Because what he's going to drive home, I want you to have sound thinking. I want you to be alert. And I want you to see how the practical Christian life really works. So the focus isn't on me and it isn't on you, but it's on what God is doing and working through our lives. So do you really believe? What does it mean the end's near? What if it to you just means that Christ could come back at any time? What if to you it means I see that the end is near my physical life, which means you're going to be in the presence of Christ? Has it affected you? Are you living in accordance with it? Are you living with sound thinking? Are you being driven by emotions? Are you living with the spirit of God controlling? Where there's self-control? Are you just letting everything take over and take your life in a thousand different directions? I had a conversation with somebody recently. Didn't plan on ending with this, but I will. In which there was so much going on in their life. And I had to look them right in the eye and I said, you know what the big problem is? You need to set your priorities. Your prior and the person was honest person said that, yeah, the priorities need to be looked at. Our priorities need to be looked at. Sometimes we just go, 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 busy, 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 not doing what the Lord wants us to do. But we have our own agendas. Like, the Lord's going to wait until I finish these hundred things anyway before he comes back. That's not living in anticipation of being before the Lord. It's not living for him the way we should. And God help us to be people of prayer. who are coming to him even when we don't know and looking upon him to give us guidance and direction. Let's close in prayer for today. 
Our Father in God, I thank you and praise you for Peter. I thank you that in the midst of the scattering of the people, in the midst of all the chaos that was in their lives, which was real persecution, real life-threatening situations, you used this man to remind them, Peter, who had failed many times, who panicked and took out a sword and cut off an ear, who was ready to jump in the ocean, then panicked and sank, who, though you said he would deny you, was eager to go by his emotions and think he never would. But as he learned his lessons and as the Spirit of God used him, was able to take these believers and encourage them to remind them that they are aliens to this world, that they could be in the presence of God any time that you could return, it's imminent, and that, Father, throughout it all, it ought to affect our lives so that we live in yieldedness to the Spirit of God. We live with sound thinking and, Father, are driven to prayers in season and out of season. And I pray, Father, this week you'd help us to live if it be your will, realizing and depending upon the God that we profess, trusting in him for everything, and allow you to lead us. Help our thinking to be sound. And I pray that if there be anybody who doesn't know Christ, help them to see that their coming into your presence can happen at any moment. Humble their hearts and help them to come to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. But we pray this in Jesus' name.